Anton, we can at least say uh, bon dia and good evening to Nuno. Oh, he's arrived. Hello, everyone. Well done. Hello, uh, there, Nuno. Good to be back. Uh, we are uh, in a very eventful week, apparently. Um, <laughs> I uh, I was joking when I... I was not joking, but I was... Um, first of all, first things first. Uh, good to be back with you all. Um, you With you, Axel and David. And um, when I said last week um, that offensive operations could start around the 6th, I apparently wasn't wrong. No, and you you weren't, and nor was I either, Nuno. I'm, I'm glad we've got that because we can remind Axel <laughs> about that bottle he needs to send us. I swear oh, to God, man. apparently I was right. It was a guess. I swear to God, it was a guess. Yeah, it, uh, it seems that uh, earlier this morning or in the early morning hour today, um, what in the past couple of days have been probing attacks and... Uh, um, yeah, continued uh, shaping operations that in the early morning hours today, uh, according to various news sources, um, the Ukrainians have started to uh, um, expand move. the operation, expand the yeah, operation, exactly. Transition then, the different. phase of Transition. the operation, <laughs> Transition and, the phase of the operation, and they seem to do this quite fluidly, right? Nuno. Well, yes. Um, first of all, I'd say that uh, we are still in a phase uh, where we are going, we've transitioned phase, we are out of shaping operations. This uh, clearly are, we're in a phase of more decisive operations, call it this way, put it this way. But um, I would say that, first of all, and the most important part of this is it's still very, very, very early, okay? It's still, uh, it's still a very, uh, uh, still very, very soon. We've started, um, opera operations have started um, in the last 36 hours to um, scale up. And I believe that um, we are witnessing the first attempts to breach the defensive line, okay? Uh, and the breaching of the defensive lines. We saw fires preparation, and we are now uh, seeing... No, no, it seems you were breaking up. Can you hear me? You're back. Uh, yes. We now can now. Ah, okay, okay. So... I don't know if any everyone can hear me. If you both can, I believe everyone can hear me. I've shared um, a tweet to the nest by Ivan Mataev, where with a very interesting map, he, his considerations are also. Please read the tweet. His considerations are also very very interesting. But here we can see four main efforts for now. One. Uh, headed uh, towards Tokmak, another headed towards uh, the eastern part of Tokmak, and the western approach uh, to uh, the road to Mariupol. So this isn't yet, um, Ukrainians haven't breached the lines yet, 
as sufficiently so we can see we have a, a main effort or a, a breakthrough. We are now in a phase where uh, mass fires have worked on enemy fortifications and uh, units are um, attempting and in some cases succeeding in breaching uh, enemy lines. These are pre-prepared fortifications, sure, but I believe that we are going to see a few days of this kind of fog of war, to put it mildly, um, around what's happening in the south. Also, I would advise against all. I would advise against any um, uh, taking any conclusions, making any conclusions of anything that's going to go to happen the next few days, because as we can uh, easily ascertain, there's going to be a lot of fog of war. For now, we are seeing basically reports coming in from Russian sources. Okay, we have some Ukrainian sources, but mostly. What the information we are uh, seeing on uh, open source uh, space is mostly from Russian sources. Ukraine has been very careful in uh, what it uh, lets out in terms of information regarding these operations for obvious reasons. We saw yesterday... They're very disciplined. They're extremely they, disciplined. They've been very, very disciplined with this information. I believe they know exactly well what they know well what they're doing casualties are to be expected okay i've saw i saw some people saying ah they lost 20 vehicles in some leopards well it's normal okay casualties will happen russian i still believe that russian fortifications are not as uh, robust as russia likes to think but they're still damn hard to breach. The enemy has artillery. And another good point is we are seeing operations in the south. Mostly now these breakthroughs have been, these breaches have been um, ongoing in the south. We have some action in Bakhmut. We'll get there. But I was mistaken. We don't have any major operation uh, in the north uh, yet. So in that sense, I was um, mistaken because I always believed that their operations would start um, up north first before attempting to breach the, the line here uh, in the south. When we look at this uh, as it stands and from the limited information we have, I would um, say we can already ascertain a few things. First of all, um, it was uh, kind of funny to watch Russian Telegram uh, go all crazy uh, because Ukrainians have been stockpiling ammunition and they're now raining uh, GMLRSs and uh, shells on them. Who knew that stockpiling was important for offensive operations? What exactly did these morons think Ukraine has been doing for the last few months? Beyond training and receiving hardware, they've been stockpiling. And another important uh, point is 
depth uh, information we saw in the Russian telegram space tells us uh, another thing, tells us another uh, uh, important point. And the important point it tells us is this. We have, uh, the Russians don't have exactly stockpiles of ammunition prepared for this offensive. They're probably burning through them as they come in. Or the reserves they have are very limited because they were very surprised that uh, the Ukrainians could unleash about 40 or 40 plus uh, GMLRSs in a single objective around Tokmak. We also saw Ukraine hit some critical objectives, especially um, around um, Tokmak. And even in the Lugansk area, we see, we've seen them uh, hit some important, uh, object, uh, logistical pools in yards that are used for maintenance. So right now, what we can ascertain is we have about two to three directions where Ukrainian forces at brigade level. We've seen probably four or five brigades involved in this are breaching uh, Russian uh, lines and Russian fortifications. This is the most heavily fortified part of the front. Now, is this the main effort? I'm not really sure. We still haven't seen committed um, some major forces. Uh, we know there's other reserve. And I'm still um, thinking that other places in the... Re in the um, in the theater of operations, offer potential uh, potential uh, exploitation uh, possibilities and potential opportunities for uh, the Ukrainians to exploit uh, with uh, additional reserves. But this is a game of this now becomes a game of reserves, right? A game of hardware. And let's be honest. If Ukraine wants to uh, take the south, Melitopol is absolutely critical. Just look at the map. We've discussed it here multiple times. But it, even if you do not strike at Melitopol in a frontal assault, which I'd say would be a, a costly idea, the truth of the matter is that any other direction uh, you uh, seek to open as a main effort, you will still need to fix forces around this region of Tokmak and Melitopol. So the forces in these regions are absolutely uh, critical to fix there, right? I would say that from what we are seeing, there's Possibly also uh, the idea of opening a main effort towards Mariupol and Berdyansk. But that remains to be seen. We've seen some action in that sector of the front, as you can see in the map I've shared with the nest. So it's a game on, ladies and gentlemen. It's where we said it would be. Yeah, the interesting thing is that all the shaping operations, you, as you inferred, allude to those critical points, those vectors, which we've discussed many times over in the past, now being really under threat. Um, 
For those who have not served in the military, can you explain as to what the anticipation level is amongst the soldiers before they now go into battle or as they are now moving into battle today? How would you describe their readiness from what we know? And how would you describe how these boys and girls, but predominantly, do feel? That's hard to say, Axel. I can say from my own experience that uh, there's a sense of heightened um, awareness, let's put it this way, of, of obviously of, there's a sense of always a sense of fear, a sense of uh, doubt, um, and there's a sense of uh, a sort of high, heightened, high, heightened awareness of uh, amplified awareness of the situation. I mean, there's it's difficult to say the state of mind without being on the battlefield. Uh, one thing is operating as special operations as I did. Uh, even if it's risky, uh, the level, the sheer level of intensity of the operations are not as, uh, nothing comparable to this. Even in real operations where uh, possibly the immediate danger is great too, but um, the scale and the scope and the enemy and the... The intensity of combat we are seeing here is a very different beast, right? It's important. We need to be aware of something. That's something I, I think merits saying. We haven't seen these kinds of operations on a peer-to-peer -peer level, on a peer-to-peer -peer level, since the 1940s, since World War II. And with that said, it's... Um, hard to ascertain uh, what these kinds of operations entail. Of course, yes, we could say that the first Gulf War and the, the, the second Gulf War are large combined arms operations. Of course they are. But they are not a near-peer uh, uh, operation. Hardly, right? And the, the superiority brought to bear by one of the sides was so immense that um, it becomes very different. This here is um, a near-peer fight, which is a great thing. Because if we look a year and a half ago, this would not be a near-peer fight, right? This would be a fight between a, a larger military power and a smaller military power. And now what we've seen is a leveling to an extent of the playing field by technology, by sheer adaptability, courage, and capacity of the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people. And this is really now a near-peer fight. So in that sense, the level of combat we are we are seeing here, the, the need to, to do breaches and uh, of fortified enemy positions with the near-peer enemy is something we haven't seen in quite a long time. So it's hard to ascertain how people are feeling. A lot of stress, a lot of, a lot of anxiety, sure, but also a lot of adrenaline and a lot of, um, and a lot of uh, rage, going through people so 
it's gonna be interesting. These next few weeks, in particular, or these next few days, weeks are going to be until we establish a main effort. It's gonna be a very, very interesting uh, proposition. And the enemy votes, as we've seen with Nova Kakova, the enemy votes, and a particularly ruthless enemy at that. So, um, it's normal. Uh, I would say that first of all, don't give in to the any gloom and doom because nobody really knows a part of military commands what's going on in, on the ground. Okay. Uh, Twitter isn't exactly, we have an idea, but it's not, uh, the, it's not the translation of reality on the ground. It's always, uh, halfway information. So people saying it's failing because X, Y number of things have been lost. You know, the Russian numbers are just fantasy. Uh, but it's still early. We don't know. And I remain wholeheartedly optimistic about this. Even if I, I am perfectly aware that uh, it's a very difficult, difficult moment, especially this particular moment. It's a difficult one. I think, um, we need to, to be careful with, um, all the first, we need to be careful with over optimism, but we also be, be careful with the gloom and doom. It's really not uh, easy to ascertain if how are things going, uh, and we need to let the fog lift a bit to to see how uh, Ukrainian units are doing and what do the Russians intend to do. One of the things I remain very curious and I wasn't able to, to find any information, and this relates directly to Nova Kekova, uh, I haven't been able to find any information regarding that, is what happened to the bulk of the units along the defensive lines of the Dnipro. I know some drowns, there was some issues with that. Uh, Russians did not retreat there, they did not uh, retrograde their units in time. That's a discussion we'll, we'll have further ahead because that's a sign, in my opinion. But um, from the, those they moved, I believe, I've heard some numbers, around seven to 10,000. Where are they? Where did they move them to? And that's something I haven't been able to openly ascertain. And haven't been able to verify with other sources. I don't know if you have any sense of that, Axel or David, from the sources Maria has, but I have not been able to verify what happened to those forces. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, uh, we've all been speculating as to what Russian troop movements um, are bounding there. There were rumors two weeks ago that uh, Russian troops had uh, retreated. Or show no, realign their positions, however you want to call it, to uh, towards Skadovsk and to Henichesk. Um There were a couple of um, operations where Ukrainians with either Excalibur or almost likely in this case HIMARS had managed to um, destroy logistics points. 
and what was rumored to be artillery en route to that, both uh, vectors. And there was one specific assembly point I would have to look it up quickly on the map. This is between Woleski and Hodomontkina. Uh, perhaps here, if you give me just a sec. Um, this is Birolivka. Wait, um, this is where supposedly a real concentration was at hand. That one. Yes, but my uh, point is beyond that, actually. I'm more. My okay. point is, um, yes, they've reshifted some of their forces in the south a while back. That's absolutely correct. But the forces that remain there, and I'm talking about seven to ten thousand, the numbers I've heard, not yep. from open source, but the numbers I've been told, seven to ten thousand. I was told that these forces reshifted. Um, even if some of them drowned in in their fortifications because uh, they were not notified in time, but most of them around the number I was given is around seventy five to eighty percent of them were able to to make it out in due time mm-hmm. and where are they? That's my point. Where did the Russians take them? That's what I haven't been able to verify. Uh, it's a very good question, isn't it? Yeah, because so, uh, that's yeah, the point. Was, that's part of the point. Yeah, so I was, it's how I was, I was thinking. Right. So, look, uh, we're going to make some, uh, we're going to speculate here, right? Speculating that uh, that uh, the Russians knew that the Ukrainians knew that the uh, the the dam had been pre-mined, dammed up, or whatever you want to call it, right? And therefore, the Russians would know that. Um, the Ukrainians will have war game for that to go down at some stage. Therefore, right, so they would know that um, they weren't in actual fact um, looking to cross at um, Antonovsky and the rest of it. And that in actual fact, uh, the, one of their statements came out, they said they planned that they would be coming across at Novokovka, right, which would mean that that road, the E7, mm-hmm. that comes down from uh, uh, goes down all the way down would be the sort of natural route, right? Then what we do know is they've got some, they do have some defensive positions yep. in that region, right? So therefore, I'm, I'm going, yeah. So it makes sense that uh, some around, uh, yeah. at the <laughs> uh, um, Nuno, yep. you don't want to hear me try and pronounce any Russian names, but the uh, between the E7 and up towards. Shiravona, Povlana, etc., seem to be like natural positions where you might be putting some troops further back. Because if you know that your uh, the troops are coming from that direction from Novokovka, because they would know that it was eminently possible there, then that's where you might be placing people, wouldn't you? Yeah, but In, the, the and thing the, is, mm-hmm. if you blow the dam, that crossing doesn't becomes untenable, right? And all the crossings south of the dam become difficult for the time being, become difficult or become uh, impossible for, for the time being, right? Except for crossing just above, right? Yeah. So 100 meters above there is really, and in fact, ages ago, I, uh, the, uh, with, um, uh, the uh, John Howarth, I, I war-gamed it out with him and just went, okay, but you, if this went down, this is where you would get cross over here and this is how you would do it, right? So, uh, the uh, and there are a couple of other places you do it. I mean, I, 
it, until artillery's out of the way, you wouldn't be pontooning it. You would just be using ferries. But you can get a lot of a lot of troops over in ferries if you have enough equipment. Yes, and I I believe for ages they've got enough equipment. Yes, I, but I don't think uh, I I still believe that there's possibly a crossing in the card somewhere in time. I don't think uh, the Russians blew the regarding the dam. The Russians blew the dam. That's clear. Uh, and that's clear from all the intelligence. We, uh, and especially it's clear from the reactions coming out of uh, the US, the European Union, Israel. There's little doubt. There's no ambiguity. Uh, unlike Nord Stream 2, there's no ambiguity on the reaction regarding the dam. It falls fair and square on the Russians. And that said, that tells us there's intelligence pertaining to to the the destruction of the dam. Because if there weren't there were any doubt about it, uh there wouldn't be um this uh uh immediate almost immediate reaction with everyone pointing their fingers in the West, pointing their fingers at the Russians. And the issue with the the dam, and what I found interesting about the dam, beyond the all the the discussion about it becoming a major obstacle to stop to to allow Russians to shift forces from the south to the contact line or wherever they shift the forces, because that's one of my big questions um, that I cannot answer yet. But beyond that, I would say there's, and the fact that they could not retrograde all of their forces from the fortifications, it tells me another thing, that perhaps, just perhaps, this is an educated guess. This was a political decision, more than a military one. And that's something I'd like to point out. Because if it's a political decision, it's not exactly moved by the dynamics of the terrain. But it's moved by strategic level considerations. And now, what strategic level considerations could Russia have to do this? Well, it's an escalation. It's a clear, if it's a ordered by the Kremlin, it's a clear sign of escalation. It's saying we just escalate the conflict by doing this. And escalation is a ladder. It's always a ladder. And this is one of the steps they have. Uh, on their toolbox of escalation, let's call it that, to um, escalate the conflict, blowing the dam. Now, they don't really care. That would explain. They don't really care about the troops, and that would explain how the the military commanders probably have the time they needed to organize the proper retrograde uh, of all forces from the contact line and from the fortifications around the Dnieper River. They couldn't care less about civilians and the fact that they're bombing relief efforts. It's the Russians. It's the same guys who bombed bread lines and hospitals in Syria. So, and the guys who did Buche and Irpin, it's uh, pretty much on brand. I'd be surprised if they didn't. Uh, but my point here is regarding the dam. If it's a political decision to blow the dam, which I am inclined to believe. That's 
the explanation for this boggled up retrograde that uh, got some of their men and equipment lost. It's a sign of escalation. And that explains also the very careful approach to it that the U.S. has had. Because the U.S. is the ultimate guarantor. Make no mistake about it. And the U.S. clearly pointed to Russia. No uh, discussion there. Of course, they said it's the Russians. We will, we have uh, intelligence leading to uh, it being the Russians. But that intelligence hasn't surfaced yet. Perhaps, perhaps, and this is a bit of educated guess again, because doing so uh, would compromise some sources and methods that you don't want to be get compromised. This paints as a picture of a deliberate act of military escalation to send a message. The next, the next act of escalation in this ladder is pretty obvious. I think anyone in this space and any one of our listeners who've been following the conflict can ascertain what that is. It's the nuclear power plant at Zaporizhia. But this is a sign. And now, this sign brings us to, to another, another uh, point, which is, uh, if this is a sign of escalation, how should we react? I'd say, we take the escalation, we take the sign, and we raise it. To, uh, we raise the bar with uh, additional commitment to fighter jets, and especially with attackums. The attackums will make a difference, but it's not a overarching difference. Um, but it will make a difference, and it's readily available. It's something you can ship. That the U.S. can ship to Ukraine and it can be delivered. And within 72, 96 hours, you could have the first attack in flight. We are now seeing, now we need to see what the reactions are. If it's perceived in Western capitals as escalation, it will probably hinder some of the support. And I mean, some will not, I don't think that, I think there's a robust discussion going on, let's put it this way about what to do next. And, obviously, there's a need to um, get um, support in humanitarian terms to to these affected areas. Make no mistake, the destruction of of the dam in Obakakova not only compromises uh, the river, uh, but it, it creates a massive humanitarian and environmental disaster. But it also creates uh, long sustain, long-term problems to irrigation, to cereal, to crops, to all that. Because some of the irrigation channels that were used uh, in the river are compromised. Even the water to Crimea is compromised. Or one of its sources of water. Now, what does that exactly represent? That's for the future. Now, in terms of military operations, yes, the Russians may have shifted some forces. We don't know exactly where. It's an additional reserve that the theater commander has. And I'm very interesting to see, it will be very interesting in the coming days to see if the bridges that Ukraine is seeking to create 
will amplify and where will the Ukrainians decide to, sh to throw in a main effort or a, a main, uh, uh, their main units or a, a group of uh, significant forces to try and seize objectives. I'm still not convinced that the main effort will come in Tokmak and Melitopol unless there's a breakthrough. Because one of the things that these kinds of operations have is you may break through in a place where you did not expect to break through. And if you break through, you need to have the forces to exploit it. And that's the, the thing here. It's now a, um, a, chi a game of chicken, right? Kind of a game of chicken. Because you're exploiting the breaches, you're removing obstacles, you're trying to uh, neutralize enemy fort fortifications and enemy defenses. When you break through, in some places you'll find it more har harder than you thought. In other places, uh, it will be easier than you thought. And in, in even in other places will be exactly as you planned. But in those places where you can breach, uh, where you find less resistance, you need to have the forces to exploit that. That's the operational art right there, right? Uh, you need to have nothing uh, develops a plan like contact with the enemy. Uh, in a recent article I wrote, I quoted uh, Elmut von Moltke. Um, actually, I quoted it because Axel, rightfully so, uh, pointed it out in the last week's face to me, and I got an idea for an article from that. Perfect. <laughs> von, Moltke, von Moltke was right in that regard. Yes, of course. There is no plan that uh, survives contact. Intact. You can game out the, the the consequences. You can game out the possible, the most likely course of actions, the most dangerous course of action, the most uh, the course of action you choose. But eventually, you'll get contact with the enemy, and the enemy will decide where this moves. Uh, and the enemy and that contact from that will result uh, uh, an. Uh, an effect you want, uh, the effect you want to, to exploit or not. So we have to wait, people. I think that, that the main thing in military in operational terms is it has started. And now we have to let the men and women of the Ukrainian armed forces do the work. But I still am not convinced that it will be only in the south. There's a sig... Go ahead, Axel. I agree with you, and I'm not in order to flatter you, but we've had this discussion many times before. It makes absolute sense to exploit the opportunities in the northeast. Even there, there's various options. Um, and if we... When we saw that the Russian legion made its way towards cutting off um, the, or threatening at least, the, Russian the railway, railway in Svatovka. Yeah, Svatovka and then Data Svatovka. It doesn't really matter where you cut it off, necessarily, but no. that you cut it off. No, you can cut it off in Russia, or you can cut it off in Sarovlisk. It's the same. It's cut off. Doesn't matter. And uh, Yeah. A uh, good thing you mentioned Belogorod, because Belogorod remains. <laughs> and 
I still um, I'm yet to 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 understand. Well, not yet to understand. This is not the 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 way to frame it. I'm yet to see the Russian military expel the Legion uh, and the RDK from Russia. I'm yet to see that, and they keep pounding at it, and they keep retreating into Ukraine and keep pounding at it. Next, it's a it's a well designed uh, non conventional warfare campaign. That I have no doubt, and it's. Working to an extent, because it has sown profound divisions uh, within the Russian uh, elites. We've seen Prigozhin uh, as the defender of the peoples of Belogorod. We've seen a, an, an interesting act, actually, between Prigozhin and the RDK. Uh, a kind of, um, it's hard to say this, but a kind of... Uh, a gentleman's wharf, uh, where uh, they both uh, uh, fight each other, but or not, but they also uh, say this is the only guy um, uh, in the field with uh, is with courage, which is interesting. Uh, because it's a well, it's a good way to exploit uh, the divisions uh, within the Russian system. It's it's well thought out. But he goes and he's stupid. He knows that. He knows it's it's uh, being used to exploit those divisions. But it doesn't it doesn't really care either, because his fight is with Shoigu Gerasimov and for the future of his position in in the Russian system more than with uh, Ukraine itself. But still, the Russians haven't managed to uh, get those guys out of the Logorov. And that opened... And we saw videos and images today, uh, a large variety, and from different locations in the uh, Belorotska Respublika. Long live the Republic. <laughs> Republic of Belorov. But we've seen it, yes. We've seen several uh, uh, images from there. And they haven't managed to expel those forces from that region, and that is is uh, is a very um, is a very significant event, uh, in the sense that it it shows great frailty by Russian forces. So nothing has fundamentally. This is my this is the the message I want to convey. Is nothing has fundamentally changed in the overall game. I know people tend to focus on what's lost and how many vehicles were destroyed and whatnot. It's impossible not to get vehicles destroyed in a fight like this, in breaching operations of enemy defensive positions. Vehicles will get destroyed. Um, Leopards and whatever vehicles are in use will get destroyed. Uh, Some of them will get destroyed. That's normal. But, but, most of all, most of all, I think it's important to to state that uh, this may take a few days. Don't let the gloom, the gloom and doom. I've seen a lot of people t- making conclusions of something that has no conclusions to be made. Of. So let's let's first ascertain what's going on exactly, and then we'll uh, have further room in the coming weeks to analyze it. David, please go ahead. 
No, I was going to say it's a good question about how they fail to expel uh, the uh, the free you know, the the, uh, the the Russians out of Belgorod, right? Which probably um, explains they have a bit of a manpower problem, and that might also explain um, where some of those troops from Herson may, may be heading. Yeah, and my, given the political pressure because of what's happening in Belgorod and the and the what we were saying, or in fact, what you were saying and we were agreeing with is that, uh, about the uh, the dam going down being a political decision. Maybe maybe what they're trying to do is free up some troops to to solve the Belgorod problem. I don't really think so. I think uh, any. Uh idea to solve the Belgorod problem will need to come from forces within Russia, but it hasn't. The truth that is that it hasn't. So that's telling. I think the forces they may have freed up in the south, as significant as they may be, they're still going to be fixed in the south. And here's the, here's the rub. And it, this is um, an assessment for me. The rub here of this is you need to fix those forces around Tokmak and Melitopol, right? Either way, whatever you're going to do, and I've said it here last week in the week uh, prior to that, whatever you, when discussing the, the counteroffensive is, whatever you're going to do, whatever you're going to do, you need to fix those forces in Tokmak and Melitopol. Of course, you need to seize Melitopol and Tokmak, sure. I'm all for that, I've said it here multiple times from, I'd say more than a year ago, that multiple is where you win the war. Uh, I know it sometimes it looks like a, this kind of um, all-encompassing uh, thing that once you take multiple, the war is won. But honestly, once you take multiple, the at least the 2014 borders are in clear uh, line of sight. Because the the corridor into Crimea, the corridor, the land corridor, the land bridge to Crimea does not survive with the Russians losing Melitopol. Forget it. There's no way around that. They can paint themselves in gold, bathe themselves in gold. There's no way they um, are able to do that without Melitopol. And the the issue of Melitopol and the issue of Tokmak is important, but you also need to fix forces there. It's absolutely critical to fix forces there. There's no uh, way you can uh, launch you can launch any other operation without these forces being stuck defending them, right? Uh, and reserves being committed to the defense of this. Russians know this. They're not stupid. They know Melitopol is absolutely critical. They've actually made ex ex extensive preparations around Melitopol and Tokmak. It's the most heavily defended area of the front by far. So they know they're perfectly aware that this is where their the war for them is decided, right? Uh, they're not uh, dumb to to think that this is not the place. And you need to threaten this coming from other directions. 
it would be far easier to uh, seize Mozapol coming from the south, from the mariupol berdyansk axis. But nonetheless, we now need to see where these major operations are going. I think for now, uh, we have, uh, there's a sense that uh, there are units uh, heading to talk back. If this first line of defenses are breached and Tokmak is within reach, then all of these forces in this Melitopol and Tokmak axis need are probably um, uh, fixed there, and that opens up uh, the opportunity to seize other other areas of theater. Because, as I said previously, in other spaces, this is a um, they they have their their forces don't stretch they don't have that many reserves in place so we need to to wait out to see where this goes i believe there is another good point is the ukraines apparently are deciding to fight at night which uh, could be explained by their um, relative superiority in night vision equipment in hardware that allows them to fight at night I don't know if anyone has questions or I'm being very boring again. Very boring. Very boring. No, the thing is. Oh, yeah, I mean, I can't stand it. So, I'm off. Uh, I'm off. No, no. Yeah. See you later. Exactly. Way, David, why do we always do this? You know, he comes here, he talks, says something which we fully agree with. <laughs> No, no, you should. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's such, it's so difficult work, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. But I mean, uh, I don't know if anyone has questions. If not, uh, I we'll... think we have Spartan coming up with a question. Oh, good. He was, he was just uh, late for a second. And, but before he comes up, maybe you can already highlight. So the owning the night, how important that is. Uh, if you look, for example, now at the operations in this area, which has been flooded, all the pinpoints, everything which uh, Ukraine has scouted beforehand, obviously it's now underwater. Things have changed completely along that line. But mm -hmm. at the same time, they have the night vision equipment and they can actually at least now use it with their riverine boats and the likes to help people. I mean, that's a start. But what happens next along that line, along that delta? Because the Russians mm -hmm. have lost a lot of people, have lost positions, and the Ukrainians have the capacity, including ships or boats. Uh, well, I'd say that around the Delta and around the, the flooded areas for now, for the foreseeable future, there's not going to be any major operation there. Yes, there's going to be, there's already uh, undergoing some relief operations, but I believe that uh, there's no major, major operation um, that's going to happen there. As I oh, I didn't believe that any major operation would happen there in the first moment. I mean, no one was going to do a, a crossing of the, the Dnieper River uh, as the first opening moments of war. This is, we are 36 hours into a different phase of operations. And for sure, no one was going to, I don't think the Ukrainians would launch any bridging operation or any uh, wet crossing um, in force uh, along the Dnipro, whatever uh, region of the Dnipro in the first uh, hours of 
of an operation. Uh, of course not. That's that's out of the question uh, because any operation launched across the Dnipro would always be an operation um, that would probably uh, be a supporting axis, right? Uh, after uh, any significant breakthroughs had been achieved. And we're not there yet, period. Uh, this needs to, uh, there needs to be some, some development of, uh, these operations in the few, in the, the next few days or weeks before any new access or any, uh, effort, any supporting effort is launched across the, to the Libro. And there's uh, other places where you can cross the Dnipro uh, outside of uh, north of Nova Kakova, right? So in that sense, uh, I don't believe that there's uh, there's going to be any significant movement there beyond the relief efforts that are uh, ongoing in that region. And uh, we need to also need to look at What's happening uh, around Bakhmut? Uh, that's another uh, area is uh, which is uh, particular of particular interest because we've seen some movement uh, in the north flank of Bakhmut and in the south flank of Bakhmut. It's clear now that Ukraine uh, is uh, making a move uh, towards. Um, the crossing between the E40 uh, and uh, basically to Krasnahora, to the region of Krasnahora. And they've managed to uh, advance quite a bit in the northern part of Bakhmut. In the moment you see this region here of Krasnahora, um, it complicates uh, matters in within the city. And we have also seen in the south some advances by Ukrainian forces. But again, this is um, not um, a main effort. It's uh, For now, it remains a, a supporting effort that, uh, of Ukrainian operations. Just because they have uh, significant forces in the region, there's opportunity uh, there. And the same will apply to other regions. We have also some some serious fighting along the line in the Donbass, uh, especially south of Avdivka, uh, where we've seen the Ukrainians uh, pressure uh, Russian lines. And south of Avdivka is a very interesting place because if there's a movement towards Pisky, this line of Pisky and Spartak, uh, we'll be going into quite near Donetsk city, right? And this is um, very, very relevant. Uh, it's, um, again, it's one of those things. It's uh, it's supporting axis. It's a, a supporting effort, but it remains a very thing, a very close, something we need to watch closely. Okay. How perfectly fitting, you know, that we have Yehuda joining us just now. <laughs> Yehuda, my man. How are you? We haven't been in the space for a while, man. That's right. I've been, uh, I've been on a, 
didn't want to interrupt. Uh, you, uh, you're, a, you're a gem. I get lots of, uh, lots of compliments from you lately. And I, I say what any other like reasonable person would say. I say, I taught him everything he knows. I'm just so happy that he's here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good to, good, good to see you. Man. Listen, um, look, it's, uh, you know, some people think that the counteroffensive and things shaping up to this started on the 21st of May with the raids and distractions, all sorts of fun stuff. I kind of tend to agree. And um, I think today is obviously a very important day. 19 days after that day. Um, that's a, it's a long, uh, it's a good amount of time to, uh, soften up Russians and do recce's in force and all sorts of stuff. And I, I too am of the opinion that, um, that we're seeing, uh, <clears throat> the initial phases of the penetration stage. Uh, and, uh, it's interesting because I think people might expect, you know, 50 kilometer bounds. The, the, the first, you know, historically, you know, the first, uh, the first goes are the hardest, right? That's, where the Russian positions have the greatest amount Absolutely. of cover on them. Absolutely. Okay. They've got the highest, greatest amount of covering fire on their obstacles. The engineers have to work very in super difficult conditions. Dozers on, on in a tank squadron are, are up and doing a lot of stuff and they're vulnerable. They're digging, pushing mines away. Um, so uh, we're not looking at 50 clicks in, you know, going 10, 5, 20 kilometers in, in, in probably the most defended parts of Ukraine on the Russian side. Um, that's that's still very good news, and they're yeah, you know, five kilometers a, is good news. Hundred percent, five kilometers is great news. And he, and the other thing that people should remember is that 50, unfortunately, 50 you know, today, kilometers is a breakthrough, man. Yeah, fifty kilometers is definitely a break in, hundred percent. And uh, but that's you know, it, it, don't expect that the first day or two. Um, uh, it's a tough fight, and you're going to hear numbers of casualties. Look, when we say three to one uh, combat ratio. Um, combat power ratio, that's because in the offense, that's what you require. So that bears, that goes to, uh, demonstrate that there will be three times as many casualties. Uh, and that's, uh, unfortunately the, the cost of, you know, liberating your country when you've been invaded by a genocidal maniac. Um, so, um, it will get better, right? But it'll get worse before it gets better. So I know a lot of people are hearing stories and messaging about casualties, but listen, this is war fighting and the Ukrainians, um, they're committed. They've got the weapons. They obviously feel they've got the weapons that they need. And, uh, we can, uh, you know, uh, we hope that they fight as they train and they trained amazing and they're dedicated. So there's that, you know, over to you. Yes. Uh, well, that's, that's my, my biggest point here, man. You know, what I've been seeing, um, what I've been saying is don't expect um, major breakthroughs in the first few days. This is going to take a while. It's the nature of things. Of course, uh, we can always say if we had air superiority and air power to be uh, much, much easier. It would be easier, of course, but uh, that's not the case. You fight what you with what you have, not what uh, you wish you had. Uh, and yeah. there's been some sorties about Ukrainian fighters in Ukrainian um, air air force, but they, of course they're limited, right? The thing here is the moment we will understand the moment there's a breach, right? The moment there's a breach, we will be fully aware of what's really going on. And what's the the main effort? And that's right. And there and, and remember, there are a, more than enough, you know, brigades, brigade groups sitting in the back there. And once they once they determine which, you know, which uh, where they're going to break in, 
but where they're going to penetrate, you're going to see those follow-on forces fly right through as well. So they're not putting that's, everything they've got up in front. Yeah, that's the issue. And, that, the, and that's, the that's, that's, the, that's, that's the flexibility of the Ukrainian armed forces, right? So they, they, they will decide where they're going to commit those forces. Yes, and, and, and as I was uh, referring uh, a bit of, uh, a bit back, uh, one of the, the, the big issues here is uh, sometimes you have a plan to uh, focus your breakthrough or your main effort in a certain axis, but uh, the front gives in on another axis. And there may be, you need to have reserves uh, to to pursue that that opportunity to to uh, exploit that that break in, and the moment you see uh, reports of five kilometers, ten, twenty, thirty kilometer uh, break ins, then we know that it's gone from breaching operations to uh, to uh, a proper line of effort, right? Uh, and of course, we need to account for that. There's still some operational reserves, especially in the south, uh, because the the 58th Combined Arms Army of the the Russian Federation um, still has some reserves here in the south, and they know perfectly well this is where they lose the war. Uh, Russian command has no no doubt about that. Uh, I am perfectly uh, certain of that. Uh, George, please go ahead. Yeah. I- yeah, you were just. I was just gonna point out that, yeah. Uh, once they once they find somewhere that they can exploit, you know. So your plan morphs, right, Yehuda? It's supposed to be fluid. You're not gonna sit there and say, in a, you know, after like a day, all that. I'm gonna just gonna stick to. I'm just gonna stick to this. This is gonna be my breakthrough point, as Nuno said. Once you start feeling out the enemy and feel that they're that they're going to give uh, in a certain sector, or they start pulling, all of a sudden you start to see them pull units to defend something, then you might realize that hey, that's their weak point and push more more elements through there. But you know, the, the first 24, 48 hours, especially with the terrain you have there now. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a slugfest. George, I mean, that's exactly the point. Um, the issue here is being that uh, when you... I'll give you an example where we saw uh, a fixed objective, Vuladar, the attack on Vuladar by the Russians. They wanted to make a breakthrough there for some unfathomable, unfathomable reason, but they considered it an effort worth pursuing. And they kept pounding in a, at an objective that was heavily defended. And they kept throwing in the mold four maneuver brigades on Vuladar until they gave up the objective of seizing uh, Vuladar. That's being fixed and being uh, basically having no flexibility in your military planning. Because the moment you try to breach Uladar one time, two times, and it doesn't work, well, you need to reassess. The moment you lose significant numbers there and you know, well, the enemy has a strong point and we cannot break through, 
you either bring in more reserves and you bring in other uh, differentiated assets or you won't break through. And that's the point. I mean, uh, what we're seeing here is four broad axes and where it gives is where you'll probably see follow-on forces being, being brought in. And I'm not a... Yehuda here is a, a proper Calvary office. I'm not. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Yehuda. Nope. He's probably uh, feeding the babies <laughs> by now, I guess. Jamie, Sorry. I hope that answers your question, George. Sorry. And Canadian infantry, if I'm not mistaken. I'm here. Yes. I'm here. I go, agree. Go. I agree. Whatever you said, I agree. You know, I think. It's a safe answer. Yehuda was putting out that fire that's making me choke. Yeah, we started. Yehuda, you, you're working on that fire? That's right. It's a smoke screen. We're going to invade again. Uh, <laughs> you got to burn the White House. You're supposed, to blow, <laughs> you're supposed to blow the smoke over the North Pole toward Russia, Yehuda. Turn the machine yeah, around. I'm sorry. Our bad. <laughs> Jamie, please go ahead. Hi, Nuno. Um, glad we got you on sh Shadow Band last night. Yay. Yay. Thank you for um, that. Thank you for the, the tips. It was good. Um, I, I was just thinking, can you imagine if social media had existed in first day in Normandy? I mean, people would have been flipping out everywhere. Uh, people, yeah, I think the first hours of Omaha Beach may have been a little rough. Just yeah, saying. and yeah, I'm, I'm just, yeah. If you can't think that war is war is tough, and that's why we try to avoid it, but unfortunately, the Russians aren't exactly human, <laughs> and yeah, they enjoy killing, and they've been dug in, and they're and just like our advances up the beaches. It's going to be swimming. Yes, as humans come, they are not quite humane. Let's put it this way. Love it. Let's say. Let's okay. say one. That point you bring up about Normandy is It's it's a very interesting point actually, um, because uh, the um, the Allies uh, took quite a few uh, weeks to establish a proper beachhead that was secure and to take some of the main objectives. Uh, things like uh, Cherbourg, for instance, were taken 20 days after, you know, or the city of Caen was, were taken like 20 days after the, the, the landings. So in that sense, uh, we need to be, this is, this is not exactly comparable because the forces arrayed were different, but the truth of the matter is um, it's still breaching a heavily defended uh, fortified uh, enemy position, uh, a peer-level enemy at that, though. It will take some time. It's very, uh, it's very easy to, to basically go out and say, it's all failing because, well, we live in a in a kind of um, a society of uh, immediate uh, results, 
and there's nothing immediate about any of this, right? This will take some time. It it's um, it's difficult. It's complex. It's uh, very very uh, hard to do. Um, so it will take uh, it will take a few days for us to get a a very to get a detailed um, view of what's really going on, and if we see Ukrainian forces, okay, we've advanced 30 kilometers, they've been geoconfirmed in south of Tokmak or something like that, then yes, we have a breakthrough. But and what? But also, if we have a breakthrough, there's always all kinds of dangers with breakthroughs, right? That's something I think people should be, be aware of uh, regarding this, is that a breakthrough is in, it, in itself a victory. It's just a way to exploit uh, achieving your objective. And here the objective seems um, uh, absolutely clear that it's Melitopol. That the key objective, uh, eventually other uh, parts of the region are uh, key objectives. But this one, uh, Melitopol, is uh, one key objective. So in that sense, we need to break in. We need to be aware that uh, there's going to be uh, even a breakthrough doesn't mean we'll be able to seize Melitopol in a few days. It's nothing like that, right? Uh, a breakthrough is also sometimes fraught with danger because uh, Rommel did a breakthrough in the Blitzkrieg uh, in Operation uh, in Case Yellow uh, into into France. But if the French had counterattacked him, uh, his division would have been lost. Because it was divided, part of it was still in Belgium when it was already deep into French territory. So there's that, right? Uh, I think this is something that we need to to um, call people and say, listen, even when there's a breakthrough, and because there will be breakthroughs in this, and probably there will be operations in other areas of the theater, but even when this happens, this is not a, uh, uh, a breakthrough is not without danger, right? Because uh, especially a mechanized breakthrough where you need to feed um, uh, ammo and fuel and everything to uh, a force deep within enemy territory. This is, this is combined arms maneuver is really hard stuff, right? This is complex. Uh, and it's difficult to to do. So it's it's we need to be aware that it's not. This is hard, right? So let it let it play out and see what happens. I think Carrie uh, wants to have a question. Please, Carrie, go ahead. Thanks, Nuno. Sorry, I was just trying to move away from the washing machine that's about to spin its head off. Um, the thing I was just going to mention, Nuno, with everything we've been talking about is that obviously this is against the backdrop of them just not having the um, fighter aircraft or the the general um, air support that we would take completely and utterly for granted if it was any of the EU stroke NATO countries and many other countries in the world. It, 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 It has to be repeatedly said. They do not have that. This is way, way harder 
than anything that we would ever have to deal with. Yes, Kevin, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you don't have uh, the Ukrainian Air Force establishing even local superiority over the in providing closer support. It would be a completely different ball game if they had the numbers to do that. You could uh, basically um, NATO a NATO level combined arms maneuver like this would be uh, the preparation fires would be massively air fires blowing everything up in the, in its wake with air superiority established over the over part of the theater or the theater itself. So it's it's a or even if the airspace was contested, uh, some in where you want to focus your efforts at reaching you would probably have air support. And you would have attack helicopters and all sorts of uh, drones and uh, stacked air support and bombers and all that. So it's a, it's a different thing to do than uh, what the Ukrainians are doing without uh, a high level, of, without significant air support. It's that you're absolutely correct in that. Uh, we did, uh, they don't have the, the air assets to do this. Um, like we would do it in NATO. Spartan, I hope that answers the question or the comment too, Gary. Uh, Spartan, please go ahead. Hey, Nuno, thanks for uh, taking my question. Um, I wondered, I was curious if you've heard of anything that's going on in Sabatove. Seems kind of quiet up there. I, my, my initial thoughts is that if things go really well in the South, that could be a great left hook. Uh, if Ukrainians have uh, obviously the, uh, the resources up there to, to basically try to take, take you know take on those incoming routes from Russia. Oh, I agree. I'm I I said here I believe last week even that I believe that this would start in the north. I was wrong. Okay, I was wrong in my assessment because I think it's my view that this Svatov Starodlinskat axis is very, very important. And it's something that if you could uh, basically um, assault it and establish a position that threatened this axis or even seized it, um, there would be a, a major, major, uh, that would be a major problem for Russians because they would need to choose if they need to move forces to defend Lugansk. And uh, the, the even Lugansk city, because Staroblisk is basically a highway away from the city of Lugansk, and it would compromise all of the front here along uh, Kremina, uh, well, south from Svatov towards uh, Lizichank and Sviarodonetsk. All of this, this would be compromised if you break in forces in Staroblisk. For now, there's been some fighting up there, but it's been uh, fairly quiet, with the exception of the Belogorod raid, which cut off um, part of the line. But there's been some fighting in the the northern edge of the battle space, in northern Lugansk, uh, around the Oskil River. Uh, but that's been ongoing for uh, north of the Oskil River, but that's been ongoing for quite some time. Uh, it's nothing exactly new. Uh, I don't, I don't know what sort of uh, 
units Ukraine has up there. But if mm. things go well in the south, that's that's clearly an option in my view. I mean, that's that's where I would start uh, first of all, because that's where Russians wouldn't be expecting me to start. One thing the Ukrainians did is they started where everyone thought they would, which is the south. Yehuda, you like the north as well, right? No, I, I was always partial to Zaporizhia for concentration of force reasons. So the Ukrainians kill two birds with one stone. I mean, by pushing down where they are now, which is kind of, to me, the natural way to go, specifically because it, 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 it interdicts uh, Russian forces to the west of their positions, the ones that are in Kherson. So it, it mitigates the need to uh, to push across the Dnipro, which is obviously a lot more difficult. And um, I think the, the north is an issue just because of the amount of troops required to have as flanks, as guard flanks, um, you know, just in case something hot does happen. It's a, it's a larger, uh, much larger part of that circle, right? On the outside of that circle. So I think it's coming, but I think that uh, um, there might be political considerations involved as well by going down from Tokmak, talk, um, because if they're able to push down uh, to wherever, Melitopol or the Black Sea, um, and 50,000 Russians are cut off from not being able to get to Crimea if they're fixed still in Kherson, uh, Oblast. That's, that, that's a big, that's a big loss for Russia just symbolically. Um, so maybe due to the, you know, I don't think they don't have enough troops, but still, you know, to concentrate your forces is still a major, major, um, factor that the, uh, Ukrainians want to, uh, you know, maintain a, a really, really good concentration of forces. So I think it's a natural, and obviously the Russians expect it too. Um, but I assume that they have enough, uh, artillery and certain things that do other things, uh, to assist them in that push south. Um, and I, I suspect they also don't believe the Russians have the ability to maintain that posture. Uh, they're not terribly well trained. Um, this is just the first day. Um, can the Russians do this for a week or two? Probably not. And Ukrainians have other forces that are fresh in the rear uh, who will, you know, they'll be follow on forces. They'll keep doing it. The Russian position will give way at some point in a certain point, And that's when the Ukrainians will exploit it. I wouldn't be surprised if at the same time the Ukrainians then push right across is exactly what Nuno said, because I think there has to be more disorder in the general um, staff of the Russian army. Uh, and I think uh, I think that's a natural solution. Uh, yeah, you conclusion. need to offer, you, you need to get you need to give uh, you need to give them another access that uh, supporting access where they need that's threatening enough for them to to look at it and say, well, we cannot not defend this, right? Exactly. Um, you need to to make make sure that they look at it and say, listen, we have another access that's there's a breakthrough by the enemy. And we have to defend this because it's the northern axis is to Lugansk, so it needs to be defended. I think and, that's that's and, the the big issue, and, with, and the other with part, that axis in particular. And that other that other part of that is that if uh, so, once Ukrainians establish themselves more firmly in the south and Zaporizhia, um, and then there's something in the north, then that means that the commanders in between those two spots have to decide where they're going to move their reserves. Right. Exactly. Are they, are they going to swing exactly them south? Right. Are they going to swing them north? So it's it's a natural way you're forcing the Russians into into doing something, and we know they move large amounts of troops at at a moment's notice. They get they panic. They did it in the Kharkiv offensive. They sent they sent uh, way too many uh, forces down to Kherson, and the Ukrainians exploded that failure. So I suspect you're going to see more of that. 
yes, I think that's that's the natural. That's one of the natural things I'm expecting is a clear shift of of a, another uh, axis of of support for the operation in the south. And you, you want to know something funny? You want to know something funny, Nuno? The other area of operations the Russians had to operate in, they just flooded themselves in. So they could have, <laughs> yeah. they could have had, you know, m mobility and maneuverability in that area in the, in, in Kherson and, and southwest Zaporizhia Oblast. But now they've screwed themselves. They've blown more dams. They've made the train much more harder to pass through. And so now it's almost like the Ukrainians can say, okay, that's, we're one for one there. You know, now, now you've just X'd out an entire, um, an entire oblast or two for us to operate in. So now you're forced to face us here and your reserves will either, you know, there are no reserves flying up from Kherson to support um, uh, the front in Zaporizhia. So uh, either way, the Russians were going to cut, you know, slices, they're going to lose. Uh, but uh, obviously their act of terrorism, they probably are very happy about. Um, it's also helped hasten their demise because um, Ukrainians now can concentrate forces Guess where? Everywhere else. They don't need to worry about the Russians doing a counter move in Kherson because they can't swim. <laughs> no, and 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 the thing is, uh, regarding the south uh, of Zaporizhia Oblast, um, the moment you uh, make a breakthrough in one of these spots that is uh, deep within uh, the south, even if it's not Tokmak or Melitopol, uh, and you launch an operation somewhere in the north. It's like, as you said, it forces everything in between to decide where we're going to support this or support that. But we shouldn't forget that there are Ukrainian forces all along the contact line, right? Uh, all the forces arrayed from northern Lugansk to uh, Azivka, they're there, right? So the moment you shift anything of of importance, uh, there's you have a problem. You have a problem because it's going to be missing somewhere else. I think that's that's the 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 big uh, takeaway from this, right? Is the moment you shift something, uh, it's going to be missed somewhere along the line and creates opportunity to be for the Ukrainian forces to play. And that's the, that's one of the issues of defense. The only way the Russians could curb this if, is if they had mobilized in time and had sufficient reserves. Let's say the Russians had another five five hundred thousand in reserve. Yes, then you could use them as uh, reserves to to meet uh, any breakthroughs that Ukrainians did. But as I said here many times, this is geography and numbers. The numbers don't add up to the geography. That's just it. There's still way too many to there's still way too uh uh many miles of line of contact, too many kilometers of line of contact for so few Russians and so few Russian formations. I think that's the the big the big thing with this, right? Uh you cannot man any of this properly. You can yes man some of it properly. Like uh, we've seen for the first 24 hours in Zaporizhia, and that's a good point you would have raised. It's the first 24 hours, okay? Uh, it's the first 36 hours of breaching operations. So let's see how this pans out in the next 72 hours.
and then for we'll, we'll more assess. mass artillery, more mass uh, yeah. Ukrainian artillery. You know, it, the, the, the night's young, right? The Russians right now, um, what they saw was an advance to contact, and the Ukrainians are still going to find that that point to penetrate in, and that's when they'll converge their fires. And um, and just about Kherson circling back, what, what the Russians are happy to deny the Ukrainians, they've denied to themselves as well. And that's a big deal because you've now removed one part of the equation. You've now allowed the Ukrainians to concentrate more forces. If the Russians were smarter about it, they might not have blown the dam and made Kherson still a battle space, a potential front. They've just said to the Ukrainians, we're now going to let you condense your forces, concentrate them on the smaller front that you have with us now. So um, Ukraine can I, basically pull everyone out of Kherson. That's right. In, in not everyone, but a lot, but most, you know, and, uh, and most of the that. forces. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's so. So I suspect that the blowing of the dam, which the Ukrainians probably expected as well, um, that was the trigger for the counteroffensive because that means that. Um, and guess what? Air defense systems, artillery, they don't need to be there now. They can be concentrating their fires on Zaporizhia. So yes. every cloud has a silver lining. Yes, yes. Matthias, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. I think the uh, I was also one of the people who believed that Ukraine might try something in the north south of it, only, only just for for the purpose of stretching the lines, making sure that the Russians have to defend a longer distance, a longer front line. Um, if you spread them out, that you can pick a spot and concentrate force, right? But I think about the second axis that's not in the south, not in the Zaporizhia, it seems that it's possible that it could be Bakhmut. We've seen we've seen some <clears throat> work on the flanks, and I saw some reports today, still unconfirmed, that there might be even more significant um, advances from the Ukrainians in north of Bakhmut in Berkivka. And um, it's also possible that just uh, posturing because uh, it's really about stretching the Russians out. That's number one. Number two, uh, getting the Russians to commit the few mobile reserves that they have. Uh, and I saw some reports that this is happening um, on the west side. Uh, I think it's Orkiv or something like that, like basically north of Tokmak, that there's at least a few Russian reserves that are being committed. And uh, even just you know, posturing at Bakhmut may hold a lot of Russian reserves uh, fixed in the Bakhmut area, uh, allowing the Ukrainians to maneuver and probing the lines in the Zaporizhia front. So I think what I'm trying to have my eyes on is reports of Russian committing more reserves. Uh, the more reserves that are committed, the more opportunity there is for Ukraines to really, really create a main effort. So I don't think we have anywhere near the idea yet where the main effort may be, but it's. I think it's going to become easier to see once we see more of the Russian reserves committed. Um, I agree. Yeah, I agree. With you. I agree. I agree. Uh, the uh, I was saying uh, a while ago. I don't think you were in uh, in the audience, but. Um, the effort uh, the the Ukrainians advance towards Krasnohora in Bakhmut, northern Bakhmut, um, creates a massive problem for the Russians. The moment the Ukraine sees Krasnohora, if they sees Krasnohora, um, they've cut off the ground lines of communication to the northern front of Bakhmut. 
So in that sense, you either lose Bakhmut or you commit more forces to it. That's one. Of course, drawing reserves is part of this. It's one of the critical parts of this. You need to, this is, becomes a game of numbers in reserves, as I was saying early on. Uh, the moment, the more reserves the Russians commit to the fight, wherever it may be, may it be in Mahmoud or the south, is the less reserves available to stem any other breakthrough, right? Because the problem here is they don't have enough reserves. They know this. We know this. Ukraine, the Ukrainians know this. The Russians themselves know this. Help Brigozin knows this. Um, there's difficulties in breaching, uh, in uh, sustaining uh, any breach without significant mobile reserves. And they don't have significant mobile reserves. They have a few, but uh, I suspect that the moment uh, any breakthrough happens one place or two places or whatever, this is probably, uh, we'll see uh, some some panic setting in. In the moment panic sets in, it's it's much easier to exploit. And as uh, yeah, go ahead, Matthias, please. Yeah, I agree, and I, I just wanted to add that it is possible that the Russians feeling the pressure from exactly what we're talking about. You know, thinking this might happen, this might become the the case, right? feeling a, an acute need to shorten uh, the front line so they can consolidate the reserves. This might have been one of the reasons for blowing the dam uh, that allows Russians to not have to defend all the west side of um, southern Ukraine and, and kind of move what they have to the to the, the Zaporizhia and, and, and Bakhmut. Yeah, yes, shorten, uh, it's possible. Shorten, Just shorten like that interior line. Yeah, shorten, shorten your defensive lines, right? But Yehuda said, you know, of course, Ukrainians can also concentrate force, but at least the Russians would have a shorter front line to to work with. So it's, that could be one of the possible reasons from a military point of view, how crazy it may sound. But I think the Russians may feel desperate at the strategic level. And I think, uh, I think on the dam, I think that I'm inclined to think it's a political decision to blow that dam. Uh, it's um, let's call it an educated guess, not to say any more about it, but it's, let's call it an educated guess that it's probably um, the Kremlin uh, uh, stepping up and uh, even uh, over what the commanders wanted to do or wished to do. Yeah, um, and, it's a strategic asset. It's a strategic and, asset. This is not a decision left to any military man. It's yeah. uh, probably uh, yeah. it's a divisional level. level decision. It's, it's a divisional level enough. decision. It's mm. divi technically the division. I, level I agree. I but agree. here's the thing: it's a bad idea militarily for them completely, because they have a huge river. For the most part, it's a kilometer wide. They have a beautiful natural obstacle to tie up all of those Russian, all those Ukrainian forces who would have a hard time, you know, going across that river in the force they need to go. Right, so. It, it was done to terrorize, in my opinion, Ukrainians to to do a scorched earth policy to punish them for daring to fight back. I personally think that if you know those Russian commanders had a, had, you know, they would want those Ukrainian forces to be committed 
and then maybe blow it. You know what I mean? But they did it before Ukrainians even crossed. So um, out of spite, whole, out of spite, it was out of it was pettiness, spite. They got scared. Yeah, that's what, that's one of the things that leads me to to the Kremlin. It's the spite. No, it's nothing to do because if you were the Russians, you say, "Wait a minute, let me reinforce Kherson a little bit. Let me make them cross and he and suffer huge casualties." You know, we still have artillery. We still have this. We can we can zero in on where they're crossing. They have um, prepared defenses. They prepared defenses, but no, no. They said we want to. We this is an easy way to destroy Ukrainian territory and kill civilians. So let's do it because they should have kept it. Because they, if it was just a a a, a, a straight uh, piece of land there, flat piece of land, but um, you could make that argument they want to shorten their lines. But they had a huge river, right? That's a that's a that's a dream to defend, right? So doing it. Uh, <laughs> It's only it's only terror. That's uh, definitely a stick to that. And Peter, please go ahead. <laughs> Numa, hi, great to hear from you again. Um, can I just put a slightly different slant? I've got no military knowledge at all, so but uh, so it's really just my instincts here, nothing else. But you know, Putin made this big claim, Peter the Great. I want the Sea of Azov. Um, which incidentally happens to take 80% of um, Ukraine's coast. Uh, so what were his plans, or what would he have liked to have done? He would have liked to have taken Odessa, the land grab from Mariupol down to Crimea, then Odessa, then Odessa Oblast, and then Moldova. And he would have liked to have put Ukraine in prison and suffocated its economy because they would have had no coastline and they would have been under total control of Russia. So that was his plan. I see Crimea as being the heart. Uh, I see the land grab from Mariupol to Crimea as being the main archery. So those are the two vital pieces for his plans and he knows if that main archery is cut, it's over. He has all his plans of controlling the Black Sea, expansion, a big military base in Crimea would have gone. And I saw Bakhmut as, a, as an arm. So he thought, well, get them to attack the arm, and then my main archery and heart is still alive. And I think, in a way, blowing the dam was a desperation maneuver. Um, but I could be, as I said, I have no military knowledge at all, and I may, might be way off. But I think once that archery is cut, Putin's plans have gone, they're finished. And he is desperate now. Um, uh, you know, he is completely desperate. Uh, the other thing, just very quick. Okay, so desperation. Uh, Nunu, what do you say? Is it desperation or is it uh, a mixture of the red line? I think it's an escalation more than, a, as I said previously uh, regarding the dam, I think it's a, a political escalation by, by, the, by the Kremlin itself. It's a way to signal allies, and it's obviously a measure of spite, for the sense, right? Uh, but it's not really a military decision. 
it's uh, spite in its political escalatory decision. And yes, Peter is correct. I mean, it, there's there's obviously the, the land corridor to Crimea is uh, the beating heart of the invasion. You cut it, and they're gone. It's gone. Melitopol, I, I've said this here from more than a year ago, Melitopol is where you win the war. You seize Melitopol, you seize, Tom, um, you seize Tokmak and Melitopol, uh, it's a world of hurt for the Russians. It's impossible to hold that corridor. They won't be able to hold it. And you have a major, major problem on your hands. I mean that's that's it. It's 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 the critical terrain of all this is uh, the southern Crimea. That's the critical terrain. Fish, please go ahead. Fish. Fish. No fish. And so Matthias, please well, go ahead. While we wait for fish. Yeah, I agree. I think it's I think it's two things. Number one, I think it's an act of dread, and it's an act of intimidation. Uh, probably more so to the West, and but also out of spite for Ukraine, right? And for the second, I think it's a political test balloon. How will the West respond if I take this much, much further? I, uh, I saw someone mention today that the devastation <clears throat> from this is much worse than detonating a tactical nuclear weapon in, out somehow up in the atmosphere, right? So I think it, it's a test of the resolve of the West as well. It's a it's a step up in the escalatory what, uh, ladder. That's my view too. It's uh, climbing that ladder another step up, and it's a test, and the test needs to be met with an iron will, and also it's also obviously all these considerations. But I think uh, my main. Uh, assessment is it's an escalatory measure by the Kremlin itself is to signal Western allies uh, what's the, the the idea let's put it this way and uh, what what they, that they are able and willing to do what's needed to uh, to win the war or to have a frozen conflict in this war Kerry please go ahead my washing machine's really going for it now, so I'm going to walk in the garden. <laughs> um, thanks, Nuno. I was just going to say that um, we've got into the heart of the matter now, which is we're not, large elements of this are related to the fact that we're not talking about a, a reasoned mind. I will not say he's mad. Because he is not mad, unfortunately. He is a narcissist. We believe he is a narcissist. And he will turn, he will not acknowledge it as desperation. He will see it purely as spite, as we have said. He will turn that fear is something that he cannot afford to feel. And therefore, any of those potentially undermining feelings will be turned into acts of increasing aggression, genocide, irrational behaviours and responses. It, it is, we say the Kremlin, it's not the Kremlin, it is Putin. It comes from Putin. And um, 
Yep, we will the take, we'll take this. And, that yeah. we can deal with this, and it still seems that our politicians aren't getting it, is to show absolute force, absolute strength. That's the only and thing these guys. My head. That's the only thing yeah, these guys 100%. understand. I, I said, and yeah. I'll, Gary, uh, I've said to a, a good friend of mine, a good personal friend of mine, who's uh, who's a diplomat, um that we were discussing this matter of Ukraine and I've said to this friend of mine once that all of this could could have been avoided if over the years for each guy the Russians killed, for each poisoning the Russians did, for each interference the Russians did, we killed a bunch of SVR agents and they ended up assassinated in the ditch. Completely. But it does make me think about people in those very senior positions. I think to some extent, this is where if you've had personal experience of being around narcissists or people with other disturbing personality disorders in that sort of grouping, you wouldn't you wouldn't question this. You wouldn't be shilly shallying around it. And it makes me wonder what the experience is or what the knowledge is, not only of the leaders, but of the people who are advising them. Because anybody who has had the experience of working with or having a relationship with somebody with a narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder, anybody who's had any even minor experience will know that the only thing that works is to show that you are bigger, better, stronger, harder. That is literally, yeah. clinically, the only no, thing but, uh, that works. We're, we're, we're clear that's, on this. We're, we're that's my point. That's uh, my point, Gary. I, I agree with you. that We could have avoided this over the years if we had uh, killed off a bunch of Russian assets, a bunch of Russian agents, because the guys in the Kremlin are all Czechists and they would have thrown a tantrum. They've had said it's basically the end of the world, uh, but they would have understood that you cannot push beyond a certain line or there's pretty heavy consequences. I think it's yeah. and we had the chance in 2008. No, no, we had the chance in 2008. We had the chance, we had the chance multiple times, multiple times. Yeah. The guy I, I agree, the but left. in 2008, we had the chance to take uh, Ukraine and uh, Georgia into NATO. That would have stopped them cold in their tracks. Yes, but we won't uh, be seeing Ukraine in NATO anytime soon. Not in Vilnius. Forget that. That's not going to happen. Um, there may be the political path, of course. That's true, but uh, other apart from that, I don't. I don't think we'll see that. Luca, please go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. So, okay, so it's an escalatory step, and uh, it's political. It's stupid. Um, um, it's awful. I see. Luca, I think we're losing him. Can Are you he... hear me? Yeah. You hear me now? Uh, now we can now hear. Luca. Now we can hear. I don't know. It went back to mute. Um, yeah. So, anyways, um, I don't know where you where you lost me, but like, yeah. I saw I saw a video um, 
of Russian artillery uh, targeting uh, the uh, flooded area of the Dnipro where uh, people were trying to evacuate. Uh, I, I don't know, like... I mean, to me, this is clear that this is pure evil from the... But, uh, I mean, I don't know what else... Uh, it's the same guys who were waiting. Bre- it's the same guys who bombed bread lines in Syria, Luca. It's yeah, new. yeah. So, so exactly, I, I'm not sure what we're waiting for. So, like, uh, we understand this. So, 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 what, what, what has to be done? I mean, if people say attack them, sure, but like, what has to be done to just make sure that uh, I mean, there is an offensive underway. So, like, uh, what, what has to be done to make sure that they just get smashed out of this world? That's my question. Uh, keep. Uh, Ukraine in the fight with everything we have and speed up some things they don't have. But for now, the game is on. So uh, you don't build a team when the game is on. You build a team previous to the game. So right now, uh, we support them with all we got. And that's it. I think we can still put our finger in the lever a bit uh, with uh, eventually uh, attack him, for instance. That's one of the things we can put our finger in and tilt the scales a bit. But, I mean, apart from that, more air defense and all that, and keeping them supplied for the overall extent of the offensive, now it's up to, to the Ukrainians. It's up to the Ukrainian soldiers and commanders and political leadership to, to do it. We can, of course, even tilt the scales a bit with some additional support late in the, in the game, but it's now on, so it is what it is. It's up to them. So, so, so you political mentioned about the sec- Sorry, Luca, one second. No, no, we can also send a political signal. A uh, we can, we can do action, a number of other a, things. A clear membership action plan, a clear membership action plan mm-hmm. for Ukraine to join after victory would be fine. That would be fine, yeah. That would be fine. That would be enough. And, and uh, another thing we can do, we can cut Russian interests around the edges much more aggressively. And I've been harking on this for, I don't know how many months, even before the war, that we can still uh, pressure and cajole some governments into out of the fence, and we can still uh, create significant damage to Russia uh, outside of Ukraine, along the borders of, of their interests in other continents. But uh, we haven't been doing it. Nick, I think it's Nick... Azerbaijan. Yeah, Africa, you name it. Nick T, I think. Hey, thanks, everybody. Um, I, I think we're overlooking one other uh, factor in this... Uh, senseless decision to to detonate the dam and i i think it's it's really it's really significant i believe that from what i've read uh of putin's beliefs um he thinks that russia owns ukraine i'm sure he thinks that russia owns the dams um all around the country because he believes that anything built by the soviet union is the property of russia and the Kremlin, oh, for sure. and and I think that um, his decision to detonate is a, a way of retract. He's 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 retracting Russian beneficence from Ukraine. He wants to destroy the infrastructure and make it uninhabitable because 
its people have somehow, in his view, become degenerates, uh, contaminated by the lure of the West. And I, I honestly think that that, that has more. Thank you, thank you. I think that that's a really important factor. It it it's a motivation that really explains everything from from the earliest days of the war when the Russians began shelling uh, hospitals and and schools. I mean, it, it, it's just it's outright genocide because he thinks that the Ukrainians have become defectors to the great Russian Ruskimir. Thank you for letting me. Yes, um, yes, Nick, you're, you're correct on that. Just go. I advise everyone. I by your by what you said. I suppose you've read it, uh, but if you haven't, go read uh, Vladimir Putin's op-ed um, a few months before the war, um, and you'll see exactly what you're saying. That the, when I read that, I said this guy's going to invade Ukraine, straight out. Yeah, a hundred a hundred percent. That it, and he hasn't changed his thinking. One iota since the beginning of this. No, no, uh, he just uh, thinks he just calamity. no. I think he get more got more radical or radical on it because he thinks that uh, he cannot. He knows he cannot afford to lose this war. Great, thank you. I, I'll uh, re, I have to res, uh, drop back down to listener, but um, it was thank you, nice to chat with you. Thank all. you, Nick. I think it's Nick B. Please go, Nick. Nick, Mr. Brown. I think Mr. Brown is silent. He is sitting in his, uh, say, on his hacienda in Mallorca and can't find the right button. Peter, please go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to bring up another point here because it's a point I think is important. Um, I think Ukraine should send their pilots off to NATO to be trained up for the next four to six months. Um, and I think what they should do, I think they should worldwide offer $250,000-$300,000 to any trained F-16 pilots to fly for Ukraine for the next six months. I think they should uh, also offer trained engineers and ground crew uh, a really good deal and I think they should talk to Poland about uh, doing the major maintenance or any major maintenance uh, over the border in Poland where the aircraft are fairly safe and I think they should bring the F-16s in in the next two weeks get 40 pilots uh, 40 aircraft, rotate them 2020, and um, use those for uh, defense. But do it, you know, do it straight away and forget all this fiddling around saying, oh, we'll, we'll have our train pilots by October. Fine, send them off to NATO now, and, um, you know, in six months or four months. They can come back as fully trained NATO pilots, but get them from somewhere else. And I think this crashing of the dam justifies doing that. Give them um, Ukrainian uh, passports and uh, offer them whatever they require to, to go and do this, because uh, it will save a lot of Ukrainian lives to do that. 
Thanks. That's good intentions, but it's majorly difficult to do. Uh, it's it has a number of issues, and um, if we are to integrate the capacity, um, first first of all, I don't think you could get the hundred. The numbers you need significant are significant, and forty wouldn't cut it because forty you're talking twenty planes, at best. Um, 200 pilots would be 100 aircraft at best, and I don't think you can get 200 F-16 pilots to fly for Ukraine because simply there aren't there aren't uh, outside of military services enough guys to do that with uh, the the still the right training and the right skills. If you had the time to set that up, probably. On a short notice, Peter, I'm sorry to say, but all those schemes are basically not realizable on the, and then you've crossed the number of thresholds that political are very hard because this is also an information in political warfare war and, um, it's hard to cross certain, if you cross certain bridges, we'll have a problem in our own public opinions. Uh, about it, so it's it's complicated. Yeah, it's not, ha- it's not could, happening. It's not happening anytime soon. I okay. think Nick, Nick B, it doesn't have go to. Ahead. It also, doesn't have to happen this way. We discussed it here on the Doolittle Airwing with actually uh, a couple of pilots, uh, P3s, P8s, uh, Compass calls, F16s. We had two uh, very capable F16 pilots here. Both of them have been at the weapons school. Um, Yes, there are a lot of pilots available, but it's difficult to integrate them because you have to integrate them into the Ukrainian Air Force when they fly there. That is a significant step, and this is exactly what Nuno is highlighting. The integration is the key aspect. You have to make sure that there's language and interoperability, language capability and interoperability. So for a foreign uh, flying pilots Air Force, whilst that is feasible, that takes a lot of effort. The maintenance side, that is a good one. That is certainly true. This is something where the maintenance uh, side can is be possible. Learned. Absolutely. The maintenance side is possible. The flying and the fighting, and people should forget a hundred pilots isn't a hundred aircraft. A hundred pilots uh, is fifty aircraft or something like New- that. Newman, can I just bring up something Axel said earlier, which I think is again very important. <laughs> Uh, he said about, you brought up about NATO, and Axel said as soon as the fighting stops, they must go quickly into NATO, and I really agree with Axel. Membership, on... membership action plan, because integrating into NATO still costs time. But uh, when the membership action plan is, uh, so to say, at hand, you can, because we've seen this, by the way, with Sweden and with Finland, both of them received coverage under the nuclear shield from two of the most important nations within NATO, meaning Britain and the US. So the membership the action plan is the formulation. Sorry? In the French, the other nuclear power of uh, I think it's French were a little bit late, but yes, uh, you may be right that they did so as well. But uh, it was definitely yeah. uh, Americans and the, and the Brits who did this very quickly. Yeah, and the reason for that is that uh, Ukraine will need its airspace open for commercial airlines to come in and start rebuilding the country and business people to come in and out within three hours into Europe, etc. 
And without NATO, I can't see that happening. Um, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, the moment this war stops, the reconstruction of Ukraine is on, Peter. I wouldn't uh, have. I wouldn't have. Uh, I don't have a, a, an iota of doubt that this is the next gold rush in terms of business. Listen, it's zero gold out. Uh, my, uh, I'm professionally nowadays connected to the industrial and business sectors, and I've had some experience with the financial sector, and I can tell you something. My uh, framework is like goes like this. Uh, if uh, JP Morgan and uh, Goldman Sachs and the major uh, hedge funds say, and the major uh, funds say, uh, it's the next big thing, it's the next big thing. Uh, trust capitalism on this. Uh, I have no doubt about that. And I think that the issue here is obviously winning the war. So I'll take questions. Uh, I think uh, we have... Uh, we have Nick back fancy. We have Nick came back. Hi, Nick, up, Nick please we... go ahead. And so we'll wrap this up with a round of questions <clears throat> and we'll wrap this up. I just wanted to react to something that <clears throat> went past about 15 minutes ago where someone said the um, the, the dam release was, in, in, in some unspecified way, uh, more significant or something than a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, that might or might not be the case in terms, it's, of, it's megajoules, it's not. In terms of megajoules of energy. Um, but in uh, in political terms, it doesn't begin to approach... Uh, what a single nuclear uh, explosion would do if if the Russians uh, were to fire the smallest possible tactical nuclear weapon tomorrow, you would see mass panic in the streets of both Western and Russian cities. Um, they, they they wouldn't even need to drop it on anybody. Uh, but it's um, it's the the scenario I I fear. Is not actually the nuclear weapons being dropped on other people, but the simple fact uh, that you would see mass panic on an the, unprecedented the, scale. The use, the use of tech, even the use of a small tactical nuclear device would create a political threshold that's completely different ballgame yeah. from what yeah, we yeah. have now. Totally. Yes, of course. But, but I'm, actually, I'm, actually, actually, a tactical nuclear weapon is just that. It's a political uh, weapon. Yeah, but I'm sorry. That, yeah, it, in fact, the kind of mass panic that would ensue as a result would be such that it might actually make it easier for NATO to respond with the what I presume would be overwhelming conventional force uh, compared to um, the current situation where yes. the the Russians politically are kind of continuing to boil the frog. You know, yes, uh, 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 the use of a tactical nuclear weapon creates in the, an immediate threshold, a political threshold that's broken, and it's like yeah. a, it's a glass ceiling that's broken. And the yeah. moment that's broken, uh, and NATO is in the game. Period. Yeah. That's it. That's that was stated clearly by by specifically the director of the CIA to Nikolai Patrushev when they met in Geneva. Yeah, thanks. That, that's it. So uh, we'll go to Fancy and Andre, and then we'll wrap it up. Fancy, please. 
Thank you. Um, yeah, I was listening um, throughout, throughout your conversation um, with tiny breaks, but I think I got the gist. Um, and I just wanted to add that um, in, in my perception, um, Russia is, in fact, with the um, blowing up of the dam, um, just boiling now, like using what we did with Russia, boiling the frog, is boiling the frog in the West, so to say, with slowly approaching um, the use of tactical nuclear weapons, right? Like Putin, make no mistake, and, and Russia, they are like a mafia, they act like a mafia. So they're slowly taking a harder punch, a harder punch, and I'm afraid that the West actually at this point in time, um, with the failure to react forcefully, it has given Russia the permission to do the next step. And Russia will just keep going. They will keep going until um, the use of a tactical nuke. And if the West will respond or not, um, we will see. Pro I mean, if they promise, they do. I, I hope they do. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm certain that Russia will test it. I'm certain that Russia will walk over that red line because that's exactly where they're heading. They used a weapon of mass destruction with blowing up the dam. Next thing might be some more dams or, in fact, Zaporizhia nuclear power plants. I have n not a yoda of doubt that they will cross the red lines until NATO steps in, until they will get it on the nose. Because they're testing it and the West has given enough evidence over the last decades that we don't um, hold up to our red lines, right? Like that's, that's what I meant. Syria. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Fancy that when I said it's another step in the escalatory level. Exactly. So I mean, I'm it's afraid. A it's a step. I'm, yeah, I'm. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that exactly we're heading towards the point of of tactical nukes, and that's it. Um, and 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 I think that's something that we should not have let happen. Um. But unfortunately, our political actors are, are willing to do that. And with that, I go down to listening. I, I'm, not cer I'm not certain I understand the logic here because the Russians could have used tactical nuclear weapons at any point. They've, no, been, no, told, no. they've been told what will happen if they it's do. Not what and says. so far, it's not what fancy and so far, they have not done it. It's not sorry, what sorry. Listen, fancy, please repeat or make it clear. Yeah, no, no, no. What I'm saying is that that Russia is, is boiling the frog with us, right? They're crossing red lines slowly and heading towards the tactical nukes. They're not skipping the, um, the steps at the escalatory ladder, right? They're, they're always taking the next step and seeing what happens, and then taking the next step, seeing what happens, taking the next step and seeing what happens. And they're approaching it slowly, right? They're approaching it in steps. Um, jumping to the tactical nuke, of course, that would be stupid from their <laughs> side but they they try to to see how far they can go and until we reach the level of tactical nukes right there's a lot of steps in the ladder that can be taken which unfortunately will cost incredible amounts of lives destroy incredible great parts of ukraine because i don't think that um letting them fight it out now on the battlefield without giving sufficient help to stop this war fast. I don't think that we, without helping Ukraine really to stop the war within the next months, um, I think we'll give Russia enough time to take a lot of steps. That's what I'm saying.
Right. Okay. I, I, yeah, I, I don't see that. First of all, I don't see what else they have that is that degree of destruction short of tactical nukes. And secondly, but that's that's the same. It, 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 sabotaging Zaporizhia would be the equivalent of a tactical nuke. It, it, it would. It who would, says? It, who well, says it so? would. It would be. It would be radioactive. It would be, in my opinion, very close to to the, yeah, they. It would have the same effect. It would have a radioactive release. It would cause panic, and it would cause a radioactive cloud to drift mostly over towards Russia. So I okay. think we can. But you also said, or you appeared to be saying, and if I misunderstood, then I apologize. What he says, you fancy you appeared to be. I I think what fancy appeared to be suggesting was that the use of tactical nuclear weapons by Russia was now essentially inevitable, and I don't think that's the case. That was my. No, I don't think. I don't think. I don't think it's inevitable. I think it needs to be. uh, We need to have a response in place for uh, escalatory steps. But it's, nothing, nothing is in, in nothing is in that inevitable, uh, even uh, regarding the Russians. Andre, please go and we'll wrap this up. Go ahead, Andre. Yes, hi, Nuno. Uh, my question was follow on to Peter's questions before about the sending in uh, contractors. I was wondering if uh, NATO would consider sending in contractors with air defense, specifically more Patriot, Patriot batteries. I think the Patriot batteries are probably, uh, more of them are probably coming. Yes, Andre, I think, I think uh, that's probably um, but without uh, a step. Ukraine uh, but without already and they're being trained. Yeah, yes, yes. Yes, yes, and that can be replicated even in country. So it's, it's from, but more batteries are probably coming. Yes. That's, that's, that's something I can assess because they are defense. And we go quickly to carry and then G-Men fast. Go ahead, Kerry. Thanks, Nuno. Just a very quick thing following up on what we were saying before, what Peter was saying about the, um, fighter jets. I was just going to say, um, I have so much admiration for how Zelensky and his team pushed so hard, tried so, so hard to get the planes in there before they um, launched their counteroffensive. But I also respect massively the fact that when they realised it just wasn't going to work in time, that they are just getting the hell on with it. Um, and I think they pushed it as far as they could to the point where they realized it just wasn't going to happen and they're not going to hang about they just was like they, you know it was they need so, to go anyway exactly so much respect for how they made that decision and they yeah, realized they it wasn't anyway. going to happen and they were going to have to go for it and now anyway they can't pull the pilots out they can only pull a certain amount out at the time because they obviously really need them but thank you so much nuno you've given us the most wonderful low down and discussion on everything this evening as you always do thank you gary g-man and we'll wrap it up with you please go ahead uh you know um i think my question is in response to the latest uh war crime that the Russian forces have committed so far in this war, which is obviously the destruction of the Novokakopa Dam. What do you think the Western 
response will be in terms of extra arms for Ukraine. I'm thinking attack teams, something that they can get quickly. Um, attack teams, attack teams in more long range, more scalps, more storm shadows in the same south, more and Taurus, perhaps from Taurus, Germany. Taurus, it's basically, it's basically, Jimmy, it's basically the same. Yeah, it, it is the same missile. It is the same. The Taurus has some uh, some differences, but it's if you adapt to the Storm Shadow, you use the Taurus easily. Um, but um, I'd say that the the thing is basically Takam's uh, long range fires. It's the the real disruptive capability that you can throw in immediately at this. It's long range fires. Uh, that can really massively complicate the Russians. Some drones, eventually, stuff like that, but all connected to long-range fires that they still don't have. Maybe get the Israelis to pony up some Loras or something like that. But uh, that's basically my my point is um, long-range fires. Long-range fires that can be used tactically because uh, the attackants has another advantage beyond range and all that. Which is uh, it's not dependent on the Ukrainian Air Force using it. It's dependent on the commanders operating divisional fires using it, and that makes a big difference in the battlefield, right? Uh, the division commander has the ability to select targets and use a, a short-range ballistic missile that is not dependent on the Air Force. Yeah. And that's sounding more possible because the Israelis have been a lot more vocal in the last, literally in the last few days. Yes, the Israelis are very pissed at Russia right now. <laughs> very, 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 very pissed. And they've been, and the Laura would be uh, a good addition to this. All right. Thank you very much. So, thank you, everyone. We, we covered it. Everyone, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Axel, David, for hosting. And I think we'll be back again next week unless something extraordinary happens because at this stage, extraordinary can be the thing. Uh, thank, thank you, you very you much, Nuno. And if you could come a little bit more often because it just this is so much easier just listening to you. Thank you very much for <laughs> such an easy evening. <laughs> you're, resting on, you're resting on my watch, man. Come on. I don't know. I'm not so sorry. I was asleep. <laughs> bye, bye. Bye, thank you. Yes, thank guys. you, everyone. Bye, bye. Thank you. Okay, bye.